0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Climate Collective Podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Our host for today's conversation is Julie Binder, a senior strategist with the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team. The mission of this group is to serve as a thought partner to exceptional families. We here at UBS understand that your family's needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic and sustainable approach to managing your wealth for continuity. The team works with UBS financial advisors and their clients to clarify and articulate your shared values and goals, bridge the gap between generation to perpetuate your family legacy, develop a well-thought-out plan to support your family goals and philanthropic aspirations. Some background on Julie Binder. Julie has been with UBS for almost 3 years and is based in New York. Julie works with financial advisors and their clients from New York through Maine in her previous role, Julie worked with philanthropists across the country for over a decade. The UBS Global Philanthropy Services Team consists of over 50 team members who are based across the world and works directly with UBS's most valued clients, helping them, in short, to achieve their philanthropic aspirations. So, Julie, thank you for joining us. Let me pass it over to you.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Hannah Wood, the Program Director for the Environment Portfolio with the UBS Optimist Foundation. Hannah joined UBS Optimist Foundation in June of 2020 as Climate and Environment Program Director. Prior to joining the foundation, Hannah spent the last 15 years living and working in East Africa. She was based in Tanzania and working across sub Saharan Africa. She focused on climate communications, climate adaptation and mitigation, and wildlife conservation. She held roles with a diverse group of organizations, including the UK Foreign Office and a large hospitality group, as well as supporting her husband in their own sustainable tourism enterprise. Hannah, I am so excited we're speaking today. Philanthropy is important to our clients, and the UBS Optimist Foundation has been a helpful tool for addressing systemic problems for children globally in health, education, and protection for more than 20 years. What many people don't realize is that we added the environment and climate to the portfolio last
2: year. Can you give us a high-level overview of the strategic focus? Yeah, thanks, Julie. Um, So the new climate and environment strategy um, has been delivered by the end of 2020 after a rather extensive landscape analysis. Um, We were looking into where and how philanthropists can engage most effectively in the environmental space. Um, Taking a holistic approach is very important to Optimus. We're looking to deliver both global and local impact, so global mitigation for climate change, and then local community and conservation resilience. And this will tie in across the wider Optimus portfolio and also connect to the interests of UBS clients. So we effectively see climate, community and conservation as three legs of the same stool underpinning everything that we do. Um, We're choosing to focus largely on nature-based solutions. We find these to be surprisingly effective and, relatively speaking, simple solutions which deliver all-round benefits you extract high impact for relatively low input. So, for example, sustainable land use. With uh, an approach like this, you can reduce your greenhouse gas emissions and increase the amount of carbon that you're storing in the land. At the same time, you're delivering income and food security for communities and biodiversity and conservation benefits. It's quite a hill we have to climb. Climate is currently only receiving approximately 2% of global philanthropic funding, which is a very small amount. UBS Optimus, of course, we'd like to move the needle on that, but we also think it's important to acknowledge the potential of that 2%, make sure it's strategically spent. We see the role of philanthropy as catalytic in this space, not yet ready for large-scale private and public sector investment. So kind of following in the footsteps of the renewable sector, which 15 to 20 years ago relied heavily on philanthropy, but now is surging ahead. And we all know there's a huge funding gap for climate and environment. And the overall funding gap for all the SDGs is estimated at about $2.5 trillion US dollars per annum. So we know philanthropy can't fill the gap alone, but it can help trigger funding by creating and enabling conditions for investment, helping to de-risk the markets, and provide scoping studies and data for decision makers through supporting research and analysis. Thank
1: you so much for that. You make it sound so
2: simple. I love the way you
1: describe philanthropy. <laughs> as a catalyst to drive results and pave the way for public and private funding. Let's turn, if you don't mind, to the new Giving Collective we're launching on climate. We're creating a three-year educational journey and funding opportunity for a small group of clients to work together. We're focusing on the mangroves in Southeast Asia. Can you give our listeners a little insight into why we're going down this path?
2: Well, as we all know, climate change is what we would call a portfolio problem. There's no single cause, but kind of a calamitous combination of causes. And with no one cause, there's no one solution. We can't just stop burning fossil fuels overnight. We can't stop the juggernaut of consumer culture. Even ending deforestation won't be enough. And switching to renewable energy can't happen fast enough. So we need to build up a portfolio of responses. So you ask, why mangrove? Well, mangroves, a bit like the Amazon rainforest, are a kind of tropical forest only in the water along the coasts. They're huge hotspots for biodiversity. They provide a home, nursery and feeding ground for a wide range of species, fish, birds, insects, reptiles, and there's even a mangrove tiger in India and Bangladesh. In fact, over 40 bird species, 10 reptiles, one amphibian and six mammal species are only found in mangrove forests. And the majority of these mangrove forests are located across Asia and even in Australia and the US. Mangroves can help to mitigate climate change, which is something that a lot of people don't realize. Mangroves make up less than 1% of all global tropical forests. But they have a critical role in trapping carbon and sucking the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. They're highly effective. An estimated 680 tonnes of carbon dioxide are being sequestered every minute by the world's coastal wetlands. And in addition to this, they're crucial in helping to adapt to climate change impacts that are already with us, reducing the impact of storms and sea level rise for coastal communities and for conservation and wildlife living there. The Nature Conservancy and the University of California Santa Cruz recently estimated that the Florida mangroves alone prevented approximately one and a half billion dollars in direct flood damages and protected over half a million people during Hurricane Irma in
1: 2017. Yeah, you know, I love what you've taught me about the effectiveness of carbon capture in mangroves. How, since they're half underwater, when they die, they sink under, effectively capturing the carbon that they have um, kind of sequestered over the years under the sea instead of releasing it into the air. Can you touch on the economic effect
2: on communities that live near the mangrove? Well, mangroves have a huge economic and societal value for people. Millions of people live close to and directly rely on mangroves for all sorts of things, for food, wood for building and fires, and of course, the direct income generated by fishing and ecotourism. Mangroves provide benefits to and also used by societies globally, irrespective of wealth, gender or age. And there are hundreds of different communities where individuals are routinely using and benefiting from these, fo- these forests. In terms of goods and services they provide, including fisheries and wood, they're contributing somewhere between thirty three to fifty seven thousand us dollars per hectare per year to national economies of developing countries with mangroves, which is a sizable amount, especially in the countries of Southeast Asia which have so much mangrove um, conservation areas. And as such, the loss of mangroves is damaging both to national and to the global economy. Unfortunately, we're losing these mangroves fast. Scientists estimate that approximately 20% of mangrove forest cover was lost over the years between 1980 and 2005. Is really rapid, and increasingly, governments around the world are starting to recognize these long-term benefits that mangroves are providing to the economies, to people, and to the climate, and are starting to take steps to protect and restore them. But there is still a really long way to go. Well, a long
1: way to go, but even further if we don't get started. What I find so interesting, Hannah, about this project is that by addressing the mangroves, we're not only tackling that. Capture of the carbon, but really looking at multiple ways to address capacity building and sustainable agriculture and fisheries. Can you give our listeners a little more detail
2: about the importance of involving the local community to create systems change? Yes, well, local community involvement is absolutely crucial. I mean, any kind of progress needs to empower and not disenfranchise local communities if you want to ensure the long-lasting sustainability of the changes that you're making. So with these kind of approaches, we're looking to find alternative sources of income to the community that are derived directly from the uh, natural surroundings. And in this way, we can add value to nature, So we're trying to create this crucial linkage between the coastal communities and the natural surroundings around them and the markets which they actually depend on from a daily basis. We're trying to empower locals and encourage sustainable development through this deployment of catalytic philanthropic funding directly into community-led nature-based solutions. And the other aspect of local communities is, of course, that it's crucial for us to understand the cross-cutting nature of this climate and environment crisis we're in. It's not just about environment. Environment is everything. It's intersectional, whether it's poverty, education, race, health or gender. All of these things are affected by and have an effect on climate and environment. And the depth of the climate crisis that reaches into every aspect of our lives means that local community involvement and finding out where all of the challenges are are crucial as we find the myriad solutions to solve these problems. We really do encourage to look outside the box and start working with others to find alternative solutions to this tying the community and helping them to support each other as we move forward. So now that I've told you a little bit about the climate and environment program Julie, do you think you could give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what it means to be a part of this new giving collective journey absolutely I can and I just really I love what you were just talking about about how the
1: community is so important in thinking about you know really who's informing the work and who forms it and who benefits taking into account that if you make changes in a community without involving the people who live there there's nothing that keeps it going in the long term. And one of the things that we've heard from our clients is that many seek a deep immersive learning experience and the opportunity to give with others. This new climate collective is an innovative and exclusive offering for clients to partner with their fellow philanthropists and the UBS Optimist Foundation to pool their funds to tackle the problem we've been discussing with a portfolio of best in class partners. By engaging in this collective, we're bringing members on a strategic learning experience, helping them develop skills, expertise, and leadership on an issue that they care about, while also giving them the opportunity to learn side-by-side with their philanthropic peers. There will be virtual meetings, learning journeys with experts, in-person convenings, and site visits to the field. They'll learn about things that you were just talking about, like systems change, climate philanthropy, and the intersection of climate with health, education, and gender. Like I said, it's a three-year funding journey, and if you are listening to this podcast and would like to learn more about this Climate Collective, our climate portfolio of programs, or about the UBS Optimist Foundation, please reach out to your UBS financial advisor. And with that, Hannah, I just want to say thank you so much for taking some time today to really explain the Climate Collective and the programs that we're working on with our listeners today.
2: It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Julie. Thank you very much.
0: As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements.